guys. They do a great job, don't they? Praise the Lord. Well, it's good to be back with you all. I wasn't AWOL. I was preaching up in Maine. And you would be surprised how hard it is to get a flight back. So I was, you know, I ended up all the way till Saturday before I could make my way back. Now, my wife and I had a chance to get some time alone after that, do some ministry opportunities, but also spend some time on Moosehead Lake. So we're happy to be back with you all. And if you're visiting with us, we're glad you're here. I don't know how you got here. Maybe someone invited you. Maybe you found this online, but you're very welcome. One of the things we do here is we read right from the Bible. So at this time, our ushers will come. But if you have your Bible, we're going to be looking at Malachi chapter 2. It's amazing. So many people feel like the Bible is such a hard book to read and understand. But one of the reasons for that is because they kind of jump around. They, they don't read through a book, just like you would a magazine article or a, a small book. So we try to just work verse by verse through the Bible, believing that it's God's word, and then saying, okay, what does God have to say to us, and how does it relate to our lives? And I think there would be hundreds of people that could tell you that the Bible has significantly changed their lives, and I would be one of them. So, we're in the book of Malachi, and we're talking about what we're calling an empty religion or a vibrant faith. One of the reasons why a lot of people say they don't want to become Christians is because they say there's a lot of hypocrites. And rather than deny that, I mean, that's true. There are a lot of hypocrites. And I'll often say to a person, well, if the hypocrite's here... God's there, and the only thing between you and God is a hypocrite, then who's closer? So go around him and find your way to God. But one of the things that was going on in this time, and and what's helpful when you're learning to read the Bible, is to try to figure out the context of what was going on when this book was written. So this book was written at the end of the Old Testament when the people of God had been cast out of Jerusalem. Their temple was torn down. They were living in Persia. And now they had just come back into the land. They had rebuilt their temple. They now had a priest, and they were following the scriptures. And for a time, there was a real spiritual revival. But what happens is, it's so easy to drift away from God. It's so easy to go to church for a while or to be committed. But gradually, there's an entropy and um, sort of just a decay that often happens. And that's why we need to keep being with other believers. And usually when that happens, it shows up in several areas. First of all, it shows up when you start having what we would call empty or meaningless religion. You still go to church. You go through the motions. You sing. You throw a couple bucks in the plate. But it really doesn't mean anything to you. Your heart's not in it. And so meaningless worship and religion. Secondly, it shows up in our money. The Bible teaches that if you're a believer, you're going to give generously to God. And often when people turn their back on God or walk away from God. They're like, why would I give my money to God? I want it for myself, or I don't trust God to supply for me. But then the other place that it shows up is in the marriage and family. You can't have people who call themselves Christians, if they're struggling in their religion, if they're struggling in their relationship with God, it's going to affect the marriage and family. And so that's one of the things that was going on in Malachi, is that they were struggling with meaningless worship, struggling with their money, but struggling with marriage and family. So we're going to be looking today at Malachi 2, verses 10 through 16, and you're welcome to take notes here. But one of the things why I keep encouraging to get a study Bible is because study Bibles will give you some background, but they'll also show you how you can find cross-references. In other words, someone once said, the best way to understand the Bible is to compare other passages of the Bible, but you can't just do that on your own because you have to have the whole Bible memorized. So one of the things that that is helpful to know is that Malachi, Nehemiah, and Ezra were contemporaries in the same period. We don't think they're exactly the same time, but it was the same period of time. And so in the book of Ezra, there's a passage that kind of gives us a background here that helps us to understand why Malachi is addressing marriage and family. So... Those of you that are familiar with the Bible, keep your finger in Malachi 2, but turn back to Ezra chapter 9. However, if you're not familiar with the Bible, don't be discouraged. Don't go, oh, I can't find that. There's a table of contents in the front of the Bible. And what I tell people to do is just write down the passage. If you have a pen there, 
write down the passage, and then you can go find it later. I know when I first started coming to church, people are flipping all through the Bible, and I'm like, oh, I can't keep up. By the time I found the last verse, he's on to another verse. So don't worry about that. But Nehemiah 9 provides, or Ezra rather, Ezra chapter 9 provides some background. So we're going to look at a couple verses, and then we'll go, oh, so that explains why Malachi said what he did. They had come back into the land, and Ezra was leading them in a spiritual revival. Anytime people start turning to the Bible and start following God's word and having genuine, vibrant faith in the Lord, then there's a revival. But this short-lived revival began to decay, and one of the areas where it was showing up is in marriage. Because God had told his people, I only want you to marry people who have faith in me. Only marry followers of God. Marry among your own believers. Don't marry the pagan, godless unbelievers because they're going to drag your heart away from the Lord. Well, that's exactly what was happening. Look at verse 1. Now, when these things have been completed, the princes approached me saying, the people of Israel and the priests and the Levites have not separated themselves from the people of the lands according to their abominations. Those of the Canaanites, Hittites, Perizzites, Jebusites, Ammonites, Moabites, Egyptians, and Amalekites. It's not that God hated these other people, but the things that they did were abominable. So they practiced sacrificing their children in the fire. They practiced homosexuality. They had sexual perversions. They had idolatrous worship of other idols that God hated. And so there were a lot of things that the pagans all around them were doing. And God says, I don't want you to be like them. And that's true of us today. When we become a Christian, the Bible says, come out from among them and be separate. Just because the world says, you sleep around, get drunk, you know, cheat and lie or whatever. God calls us to be separate. But he also calls Christian communities to be separate in their marriage, meaning only marry believers. So they tell Nehemiah, listen, verse 2, they, that is the people, have taken some of their daughters as wives for themselves and for their sons, so that the holy race, the holy just means set apart, God's people, has intermingled with the people of the lands. Indeed, the hands of the princes and the rulers have been foremost in this unfaithfulness. So here's what's going on. The leaders and many of the people were marrying these godless people. And you might say, why would they do that? Well, probably for two primary issues. Number one, the Jews at the time were the poor. So as they had just come back into the land, the Moabites, Canaanites, they owned the land. Okay? And so if you were to marry one of these foreign women, you would then marry into a wealthy family, and then you would have rights to land. So that would be one reason. Secondly, they sometimes just married for physical attraction. They're like, hey, this, this girl's a Canaanite, but she's beautiful. And so um, I don't want to marry one of my people. She's the one for me. So that was the first thing that was happening. The other thing that was happening is that the men in, in Israel were divorcing their wives, sometimes divorcing their wives unbiblically, indiscriminately, just so they could marry one of these pagan wives. So that's the context of what's going on. So Malachi is led by God to address that issue, and that's what we're going to look at this morning. We're in Malachi chapter 2. So this passage is really about marriage. It's about family. And it's something we all need to hear because whether you're married or single, many of you have been affected by divorce. Some of you are divorced. Some of you are not yet married and you're thinking about who you're going to marry. Some of you have been the victims in a divorce. Some of you have been the, the, the instigator of a divorce. So we need to know what does God say about this. And, and I'm going to read through this passage and I want to really offer compassion and hope but I also want to try to teach what the Bible teaches. I know there have been people who have, you know, told people, I'm not coming here anymore. I don't like what Pastor Tom has to say. It makes me uncomfortable or it makes me angry. And so that's not my intention. I never want to say things that would just be offensive. But I do want to say what God says. And so the Bible says in the last days, men will want their ears tickled. They'll be lovers of themselves. They don't want to hear the truth. So 
I want us to pray, and then you follow along. And the Bible says we're all supposed to listen and compare Scripture and say, hey, if this is what God says, then I need to respond to it. So let's pray. Heavenly Father, I pray today that your word will have a significant impact in our lives. Thank you so much for the Scripture. And Lord, I just want to pray right now that as we talk about marriage and family, that all of us in one way or another are affected by this. Some of us have children that are married or one day will grow up to get married. Some of us are, are blessed in our marriage. Some are struggling. Some are, are bitter and hurt and disillusioned. All of us need to hear from you. So may your Holy Spirit speak to our hearts and bring about powerful, encouraging change as we as a community of Christians try to grow together. In Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Now, last week, Pastor Bob explained how God was judging the priests because of their failure to obey God's word, their failure to teach God's laws. And in Ezra and Nehemiah, it said, even the priests were marrying godless women. So now God, in a series of question and answers through Malachi, remember, this is God's message. God's speaking now to his people. So in verse 10, he asks them several questions. Do we not all have one Father? Has not one God created us? Why do we deal treacherously, each against his brother, so as to profane the covenant of our fathers? So I want to start with that, that phrase, have we not all one Father? So you can see what God's doing. He's saying, look, my children all belong to me. We're, we're siblings, right? Parents get this. You're like, you know, why are you and your brother fist fighting? We're family, right? So God's appealing to our spiritual family. He's saying, look, if we all belong to God, we have one God and Father over us all, that means we're all brothers and sisters. And as brothers and sisters, we have to learn how to get along. Now, interestingly, it's important that we understand when he says we all have one Father. This is not worldwide. It's a very common teaching that everyone on earth is a child of God. We're all God's children. Let's just hold hands and get along. That's not what the Bible says. The Bible teaches that only those who receive Christ, Jesus alone, exclusively as their Lord and Savior, become a child of God. In fact, John chapter 1, verse 12 says this, As many as receive Christ, to those who believe in his name, those who realize that he died to bring them to God, to them... He gives the right to become the children of God. So technically, for an unbeliever to pray like this, my Father, would you help me? Or our Father who art in heaven. That's really not true. God is not your Father. He wants to be your Father, but you have to come to Him in faith and ask for His forgiveness and believe in Christ. Then He becomes your Father. So this is speaking to God's people. Look, we have one God and Father, so why are we dealing treacherously against our brother? Now, he doesn't tell what they're doing yet, but we'll find out in verse 11. So this is what he's saying you're doing. Why are you doing this among one another? Verse 11, Judah has dealt treacherously. And that phrase is going to be used five times. It can mean acting unfaithful, breaking your word, treating people treacherously. And an abomination has been committed in Israel and in Jerusalem. Now, God hates all sin, but there are some things that he considers an abomination. So when God says something's abominable, that's high level, right? So well, what is it they're doing? Verse 11 says, For Judah has profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves. Now, at first reading, you would go, oh, they must be, they must be going to church and doing something to the church building. They're profaning the sanctuary. Well, one of the things I want to say right up front about this passage is it has many, many difficult Hebrew phrases in here. So the translations are going to be very different. And it's not because there's a bunch of different Hebrew manuscripts. They're the same manuscripts. There's a lot of agreement. It's just it's difficult to translate this passage. And so I'm going to spend time on a number of these verses explaining this is what one translation says, this is what another says, here's why. So literally in Greek, or in the Hebrew here, it says, they have profaned the sanctuary. The word here literally means holiness. That's all it is. It's the normal word for holiness. 
So they've profaned the holiness of the Lord. Now, what does that mean? Well, it could mean that they're just offending God's character. The Bible says he's holy and set apart. However, some translations, like the New American Standard and the ESV, think, well, this word is synonymous with the sanctuary. Okay? So they're profaning God's holy sanctuary. However, some have suggested that he's really talking about marriage here. So holiness is a synonym for marriage. So the New King James Bible says they have profaned the holy institution, marriage. Okay? So it's possible that it could be speaking of any of the three, but the context here is he's talking about marrying an unbeliever. Notice, it says, they've profaned the sanctuary of the Lord, which he loves, and has married the daughter of a foreign god. Now, again, learning to read the Bible, you have to read in context. If I just read that verse, they profaned the sanctuary and they married a daughter of the foreign god, that would usually mean that they were just worshiping idols, right? But the context here is not about idol worship. It's not about offending God at his sanctuary because you didn't worship him like the Ten Commandments. It's about marriage. So since that's the case, and we know from other passages that they were marrying unbelievers, what God's saying here is, listen, this is treacherous and abominable to me, it offends my holy nature that I love that you are marrying unbelievers, okay? Now, this happens all the time in Christian communities. There are people who call themselves Christians, and in deliberate defiance to the word of God, they marry an unbeliever, and they go, hey, that's the one for me. And we can see that God feels very seriously about this. The Bible says in 1 Corinthians 7, you're free to marry anyone you wish, but only in the Lord. And it just makes sense, because if you marry an unbeliever, you're going to run into all kinds of problems as you're trying to worship and raise your children. And anyone who's done that as a believer recognizes, man, that was a mistake. Even if God eventually saved them, which sometimes happens. So that's the first problem. They're marrying unbelievers. Here's how God comments on that. He says, as for the man who does this, this is Malachi's pronunciation of judgment. May the Lord cut off from the tents of Jacob everyone who awakes and answers or presents an offering to the Lord of hosts. Now again, that's weird. May God judge everyone who awakes and answers. What in the world does that mean? If a guy wakes up and he doesn't answer? What does awake and answer have to do with it? Well, again, this goes back to the Hebrew. The King James says this, may God cut off every master and scholar. And you're going, master and scholar? What does that have to do with someone who awakes and answers? The New King James says, may God cut off everyone who's awake and aware. And the ESV goes totally a different direction. The ESV says this, may God cut off any descendant of the man who does this. And you're going, wow, why so many translations? Well, because it's difficult, and the words and the pointing of the vowels could have some significance into what it means. But, but let's start with the general idea. Okay, when people marry unbelievers, God's going to judge them. There's going to be punishment. It doesn't mean they're going to go to hell, right? But it means they're going to have consequences. Now, awakes and answers could just be a figure of speech for people who willingly do this. If, if the translation, may he cut off the descendants, then he's saying this is going to have consequences not only for the person who does this, but for their children. Or he could simply be saying a master and scholar, which probably in my mind is the least of, of the possible interpretations. So let's just say this. God is saying if you marry an unbeliever, right, you're going to have consequences. Even if, notice, you bring an offering to the Lord of hosts. So notice, these people were still worshiping. God clearly says don't marry an unbeliever. They marry an unbeliever, but they still go to worship, and they go, oh, God, here I am to bring my offering, to thank you and pray. Now, this is what we would call hypocrisy, right? 
deliberately disobey God, knowing it, not, not wanting to change, but still going to church, going through the motions. Well, that leads to God's comment. Verse 13, he goes, and, here's a second thing. Many translations, literally it says, and this is a second thing that you do. So everybody's clear. The first thing they were doing is marrying unbelievers in deliberate disobedience to God, right? But secondly, he goes, this is the second thing you do. You cover the altar of Lord with tears, with weeping and with groaning. Now, in my mind, I would say, why would that be bad? That's good. They come to church and they're crying and they're weeping and they're groaning. They're repenting of their sins. They're sorry for what they did. That's good. But as I did some study, did some study on this, it appears that that's probably not what's going on. The New American Standard says, you weep and groan because he no longer regards your offering or accepts it with favor. But other translations say, you weep and groan so that he no longer accepts your, your offering with favor. And that's probably what he means here. Let me tell you why. Because the pagans at that time, they believed that one of the ways to appease God was to go through these very emotional times of self-affliction. So here's an example. If any of you have ever read the story of Elijah in 1 Kings 18, do you remember when Elijah challenged the prophets of the false god Baal to see who could call fire down from heaven. You remember what the prophets of Elijah did? They were screaming and wailing. They were cutting themselves. They were crying and mourning and trying to work God into a, through their frenzy to get something from God. And of course, God didn't pay attention to them. So likely what, what, what Malachi is saying here is, here's another problem God has with you. You go through these pagan acts of contrition with the result that God's not going to accept your offering. So let me give you an example. People can come to church and hear the word of God, and they can get moved. I've on numerous occasions seen people weep, right? I even had a guy say to me one time, man, you really got through to me with what you were saying about, about sinning. And this week, um, I was getting ready to sin, and I, and I thought about what you said. And I said, well, did you still sin? He goes, yeah, I still did. But I felt really... So, so, so the idea here is this. There is a place in the Christian community for genuine mourning and repentance. And we all need to go there. Pastors, everybody. There are times as Christians that we do need to mourn and weep and repent of our sins. Okay? I know that's not popular Christianity. You know, most people want to go to church where, like Caleb, and there's nothing wrong with Caleb, but positive, encouraging Caleb. There are times that we don't need positive encouraging. We need to be reproved and convicted. We need to be brought to a humble place of brokenness before God. James chapter 4 talks about this. James says, you've been loving the world. You've made yourself an enemy of God. So be miserable and mourn and weep. Let your laughter be turned to sorrow. Let your joy be turned to gloom. Humble yourselves in the presence of the Lord. Resist the devil and he will flee from you. So there are times as Christians that we really need to, quote, get on our knees before God and confess our sins and realize that we need to make some changes in our lives, okay? But that should not be the normal, ongoing, daily experience. Otherwise, what are we saying to God about the cross? If I'm constantly beating myself up and going, oh, God, I'm so horrible, I'm such a mess, why would you ever love me? then I'm downplaying the beauty and the preciousness of the cross. Jesus died because we are filthy sinners. He died because we're broken people. And the, the Christian faith is not be good to get God's approval. The Christian faith is be good because you have already found God's approval through the forgiveness of Christ. So there's a balance here. Some of you need to repent and mourn of your sin. Some of you need to stop beating yourself up and finding that Jesus is looking at you like a woman in adultery. Neither do I condemn you. Neither do I condemn you. I've taken away your sin. You're free. You're forgiven. I still love you. I don't love you on your performance. So, but there's one other thing I want to add here, and that's this. That mourning and tears 
must be accompanied by a genuine willingness to forsake that sin. There's a great misunderstanding, I think, in the Christian community about 1 John 1.9. 1 John 1.9 says, If we confess our sins, God is faithful and just to forgive us our sins. He'll cleanse us from all unrighteousness. But what that means in the context is there's an implicit commitment towards repentance. Otherwise, it's mockery. Let me give you an example. If I say to God, Oh, Lord, forgive me for going out last weekend and getting drunk, or forgive me for... Um, looking at porn, or forgive me for lying on my taxes. God, forgive me for cursing that guy out. Forgive me for having an affair. But I have no intention of stopping that behavior. Then that's mocking God. Proverbs twenty-eight thirteen says this. He that covers his sin will not prosper. But if you confess it and forsake it, you will find mercy. So if people go, oh God, forgive me for smoking weed tonight and I'm supposed to get a good batch tomorrow night, so forgive me for smoking that also. Or forgive us for living together as we continue to do that. Or forgive us for lying, but I, you know, I'm, I'm not going to be honest. Then you're not really confessing your sins to God. You're not really wanting to be forgiven. You're simply wanting a covering to continue in sin. So God says, here's part of the problem. You don't understand that your, your acts of contrition aren't sincere, so I'm not accepting your offering. Verse 14, then they ask God the question, for what reason? And God says, because I've been a witness between you and the wife of your youth, against whom you have dealt treacherously, though she is your companion and your wife by covenant. I do want you to notice there that a marriage agreement is a covenant. It's a binding vow. When you get married, you're not just saying, you know, what's up? If we like each other, we'll stay together. If we don't, no big deal. You're saying, I solemnly swear before God to stay together, to love you until death do us part. And to break that covenant, God says, in an unbiblical way, if you do that unbiblically, then you're dealing treacherously. Now, verse 15 leads us to some more troubles in how to uh, translate this. Verse 15 says, not one has done so who has a remnant of the Spirit. Now you might say, okay, so what he's saying here is if a person's a believer, they wouldn't do that. But this phrase is difficult to translate. The King James says this, Did God not make one? Yet he had a residue of the Spirit. You go, what? The ESV says this, Did he not make them one? with a portion of the Spirit in their unity? The New King James says, didn't he make them one? And they have a remnant of the Spirit. And then the NIV just goes way off. They go, didn't he make them one in flesh and spirit? Because the word here, remnant, if the vowel point is changed, could be translated flesh. Okay? So let me, let me tell you what I think he means here. One of two possibilities. Either he's simply saying, think back to creation. When God pronounced marriage, he said the two shall be one. Echad, the same Hebrew word for one. Didn't he originally make marriage one? And then when it says with a portion of his spirit, he could be referring to the creation account where he spoke wind, breath, the same word, spirit, into their lives. So he's just thinking back. Remember, God made them one with a portion of his spirit. Or he could be appealing to the idea that his Holy Spirit does indwell those who are his followers. Okay? So either way, he's still making the point. If you divorce unbiblically, you're going against what God designed. He made them one. Now, notice what he then says, another difficult phrase. The, the New American Standard says, what did that one do while he was seeking a godly offspring? And you go, well, who's that one that he's talking about? I'm going to suggest that he's not talking about the divorcer or the married person. I think this verse is talking about God. So it would be better translated literally, why one? Or what was one God, and I'd add the word God, seeking? Why did he make them one? What was this one God seeking? And then we have... Two words in Hebrew. 
Zerah Elohim, seed of God. So most Bibles are going to translate this, godly seed. So, so in essence, I think what God's saying here is this. When you divorce, one of the problems is this. My design in making you one is because I sought godly offspring. Okay? And when you think about it, that makes perfect sense because there's not even, hands down, a second close way to bring people to faith in Christ. The number one, by far, hands down, no exceptions, means by which many people come to know the Lord Jesus as personal Savior is through godly family, parents and grandparents, parents or grandparents. Matter of fact, prove it. How many of you are a follower of Christ, you're a believer, partly as a, or primarily as a result because you grew up in a believing family? Raise your hand. Okay? The majority. Okay? So it does make sense to say God designed marriage because that's where the primary place where you disciple and raise godly offspring, the families, a critical place to that. It doesn't guarantee that two Christian couples will always have godly offspring, nor does it say if only one of them is a Christian, you can't have godly offspring. It's just saying this is the normal reason for it. So God then gives his advice. He says, take heed then to your spirit and let no one deal treacherously against the wife of your youth. Now, this is really important because he's going to say the same thing in verse 16 at the end. Take heed to your spirit. This is, this is the, the application, first application. Take a long, hard look at your own soul. Okay? This doesn't say take heed to your spouse's spirit and give him a mailbox and say, see, why aren't you doing this? Guard your heart. Sin is deceiving. Part of being a Christian is I have to do self-examination. Our heart is full of tricky, sneaky motives, and it's deceitful. So I have to regularly realize that Satan wants you to stray in your heart in your marriage. That's why one of the Ten Commandments is you shall not covet your neighbor's spouse. Satan will give you all kinds of reasons why you don't deserve this marriage, and that person will treat you better. Take heed. Guard your heart. Don't think, oh, it could never happen to me. I would never do something like this. I'm better than this. Many a marriage has been ruined simply because people were totally unwilling to pray when they were in trouble to get help, to to take measures, to take heed, to not allow themselves to fall into divorce. Now, we have to then deal with the fact that here we live in a culture where probably half of our society is already divorced, right? So what do we do here? Do we just, those of us who by the grace of God have not got divorced just say, oh, well, sorry, sinners, you're on the outs. That's nonsense. We have to say, okay, how do we apply the scriptures to our culture and our situation? Well, we're going to finish with verse 16, and then I'm going to do some applications here. Now, interestingly, Difficultly, verse 16 is another verse that's hard to translate. Now, I just want to give a quick caveat here. This is not normal. If an unbeliever says, yeah, the Bible's hard to understand, it's all contradicts itself, that's nonsense. That's just a smokescreen. The message of the gospel of salvation is very clear. Jesus loves you. You're a sinner. I deserve to go to hell. The only way to get to heaven is because God sent his son Jesus who died and paid for all your sins, not purgatory, not your good works, and God offers you the free gift of salvation, eternal life, if you're willing to turn and put your faith and trust and receive Christ as your Lord and Savior. That's not complicated. Okay? So don't let anybody say, ah, see, you can't understand the Bible. But verse 16 is tough because it starts out with the phrase, I hate divorce, says the Lord God of Israel. Christians quote this all the time. I did extensive study on this this week. In fact, I even called a Hebrew scholar because there's so many difficulties with this verse. First of all, the text definitely does not say, I hate divorce. The text says this, he hates divorce, says the Lord. Okay? But that's not the only problem. There are ways that this verse could legitimately be translated that this word hate is a reference to the person who is divorcing 
so that it could be translated, he who hates and divorce is, says the Lord. In fact, the ESV actually doesn't say anything about God hating divorce. This is what it says. The man who doesn't love his wife but divorces her has covered his garment with violence. So I want to be fair to the text. It does not say, I hate divorce. It says, he hates divorce, says the Lord. So in fairness, it could be talking about God. And most of the translations, King James, New King James, and I read and they ask, they all say that. But, and, and here's how I would qualify it. I think I would, would think the best way to look at that is to say this. It is quite possible that it's a reference to God's feelings about divorce, but we need to, to qualify this. Jesus said in the book of Matthew chapter 19, they said, is it right to divorce? And Jesus says, from the beginning, God didn't want it that way. But then they said, well, why did Moses permit it? So if we read here, God hates divorce, we have to qualify it with a couple of things. Number one, I think what he's saying here is that he hates unbiblical divorce. He hates treacherous divorcing of someone when you don't have biblical grounds for it. Because the New Testament does allow for divorce under certain circumstances. And to simply just sweepingly say, God hates divorce, for a victim of divorce where your husband has been unfaithful or your wife has been unfaithful or run off on you or abandoned you, there's this tendency to think God must hate me because you know, I'm divorced. So it's important to understand that the New Testament does allow for two grounds for divorce. One is marital, marital unfaithfulness, adultery. In Matthew chapter 19, Jesus said, he that divorces his wife except for immorality, porneia, which includes adultery, is committing adultery. So the idea would be something like this. If a Christian is married to another Christian, and that spouse, man or woman, is sexually unfaithful and commits adultery, then God permits divorce. However, I would still not say God desires that, God wants that. There have been many couples who have experienced unfaithfulness, and through genuine repentance, counseling, the grace of God, have experienced healing and restoration. So... It's not an automatic carte blanche, man, I hope my spouse has one that says, so I can get out of this marriage, right? Secondly, 1 Corinthians 7 says that if you're married to an unbeliever, no, I'm sorry, 1 Corinthians 7. And again, that's why you guys have a good memory because I'm not seeing many of you write these things down. You should, you, you should be serious about this. Like, I've got to read these passages. I don't have time to look them up now. 1 Corinthians 7 says this. If you're a believer and you're married to an unbeliever, don't you leave them. If you're both believers and you separate, don't get divorced, seek reconciliation. But then it says this, but if your unbelieving spouse decides to leave you, then you are no longer under bondage. And most scholars would interpret that to say, you're free from that marriage vow because the unbeliever has chosen to abandon you. Now, there's some cautions there. If you're a believer, I've seen this. Sometimes believers try to make their unbelieving spouse's life miserable to try to drive them away. When, in fact, the Bible says, if you're a believer, why would you leave your spouse? It says, how do you know whether you might save them and your children are blessed and set apart because there's a believer in the home? Now, the third one, though, is... There's somewhat of a gray sense to say, are there any other grounds for divorce in Scripture? Now, some would say no. As a leadership here, we are putting together a marriage cover, or a marriage paper, and I want to read to you a portion of it. And this is what we've written as leaders. Divorce is not, divorce is permitted, though not commanded, required, or endorsed in Scripture, except under exceptional circumstances. The Bible does not present us with case law to be used to adjudicate the permissibility of divorce in every possible circumstance, especially addressing a situation not specifically addressed by Jesus. And the issue that I'm thinking of here specifically is the issue of abuse, okay? Physical abuse or 
a tremendous amount of emotional and psychological ongoing divorce. Now, please hear me out here. Everybody wants a divorce if their spouse is mean to them. They're abusing me. I deserve a divorce. That's not what we're talking about here. But there are legitimate cases where there is severe abuse. So this is the policy that we are developing. It says, in the case that scenarios arise to which the Bible doesn't speak directly, the Board of Elders will be the interpretive authority on the basis of the Bible's application in our practice of our congregation. So so we recognize that there are some sticky situations and we're not going to simply say, Every situation's cut and dry, and that's why the Bible says, submit to your leaders and obey them. It's not just a free-for-all where everybody can do what they want. All right. Having said all that, what are our applications here? Okay, we, we go, listen, the church is a hospital. It's a healing community. Many of you have been either divorced, the victim of a divorce, your parents were divorced, you're thinking about getting a divorce. So I want to share with you some very practical and very important applications. Number one, I want you to remember and realize that as a church, the house is the primary place of discipleship and passing on the Christian faith. Your home is the number one place. Youth group ain't going to fix your kid. Christian school is not going to raise a godly child. It is the home that is the number one place where Christian discipleship takes place. So let me say some things about that. Number one, parents, you and I need to learn to be exemplary in our behavior. If you're not living your faith at home, all you're doing is raising a person who's going to have an aversion to the Christian faith because they're going to go, it's nothing but hypocrisy. And living our faith at home does not mean we always get it right. It means that we are humble. It means that we are sincere. It means that we're willing to admit that we're wrong. It means that we're going to come alongside of our kids and say, I struggle with sin just like you do. We're not going to say things like, how could you ever do this? When in fact, most of us probably did half the stuff our kids did. And the other half that our parents don't know we did, your kids are doing too. So so be exemplary. Second, be in prayer for your spouse. Be in prayer for your children seriously, regularly. Prayer is a church. If this in itself should be a reason why everybody should be back here tonight praying. Third, recognize the significance of the church in partnering with you in the home. We are here to partner together to help raise godly children. That means Sunday school, children's program, youth group, the things that we offer, being in a small group. These are important Don't leave it up to your children to go, do you want to stay in your jammies and have Cocoa Puffs, or do you want to come to church? Oh, Billy, he, he, I don't want to force religion down his throat. Joshua said, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. I understand little Billy, when you put him in Sunday school, he's going to go, he won't die. No one has ever died down there, okay? And usually by the time you come back, right, he starts to go, mom and dad who, right? So, so. Partner with the church. Attend the church regularly. That says a a, a message to your kids. When you go on vacation or when when you're away, be supporting your church. Teach your children to give. Teach them how to serve in the church. Include them in acts of service. Involve them. Especially try to find Christian friends for your kids. Do whatever you have to do. If it means you have to drive an hour, if your kid, if you're finding other families with similar values, That is something that's incredibly significant. Prayerfully seek to find Christian friends for your kids. Next, make scripture a central part of your home. If I come to your house and I say, hey, uh," and mom says, go get mother's favorite book. I hope your kids aren't going to come back with the TV guide, right? Scripture should be a central part of your home. It's not like there has to be one way to do it. But the Bible says these words should be diligently in your heart. Write them on your walls. Teach them to your children. So one way or another, reading of Scripture and talking about the Lord has to be central in the home. Now, kids do not vote for this. They do not go, oh, Dad, you forgot for us to have devotions. Or do we have to stop praying now? I'd rather not watch television. So, So take the leadership. Let me suggest something. We sell a children's Bible storybook. 
powerful. Probably, John Beagle would say, it's probably our number one seller. It is fantastic. Every story points to Christ. So at the end of Noah's Ark, it says, just like in Noah's day, people weren't ready, and God judged them, Jesus Christ is coming, and, and we need to be ready. So be reading, be memorizing scripture, have Christian music. Don't make it so weird. If, if for some of you, this means you're going to have to change your life. Are you kidding me? My teenage kids would just fall over if I said we're going to have Bible reading. We'll prop them back up when they fall over. And if they say, I don't want to do that, then you begin to use your leverage. Like, that cell phone's looking pretty good up on the shelf, right? So, so don't make it this thing that, you know, we're going to have two hours of Bible reading. But scripture, pray that scripture is an active part of your home life. And fathers, especially fathers, if you're a man here and you're married, take the leadership in your home. Tell your family, let's take a moment to pray before we go on this trip. We're going to sit down together and have five minutes of prayer. Or we're going to read a brief devotional. Don't take a, a survey. Who wants to do this? Anyone who doesn't. Joshua said, as, to me, as for me and my house, we will serve the Lord. Be balanced in your discipline. Don't, don't think you're Moses. Come alongside the children. Proverbs, or Ephesians 6, 4 says, Fathers, don't provoke your children to anger. Bring them up in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. So pray for this, that our home, Christian homes in this church, and listen, don't think you're here with a bunch of people that have it all together. Every one of us is dysfunctional, okay? This is a hospital, and we're helping each other to grow. Number two, make your marriage a high priority. Make, was there anything not clear about that? Make your marriage a high priority. Marriage takes work. Sometimes, even for the sake of Christian work, people are like, I'm so busy in the church. Man, Jesus Christ never asked you to lay down your life for the church. He already did that. He says, I want you to lay down your life for your wife. Which means, for me, little things like this week in Maine, all I'm thinking about is, Trout must be biting. Wonder if the trout are biting. Wonder if the salmon are biting. But that's not what I was there for this week. Okay? The Bible says love does not seek its own. So guys, make your marriage a high priority. Ladies, which means sometimes that means repentance, humility, sacrifice, get counseling, read books on marriage. If you don't know how to communicate, learn how to communicate. Find mentors, you young couples, find mentor couples. Titus 2 says, older women, teach younger women to love your husbands, love your children. Be mentor couples. Take out some of these young people. Another thing, in making your marriage a high priority, you've got to have accountability. Don't deceive yourself and think, my marriage is my business. I don't have to talk to anybody else about it. That is nonsense. Find somebody who will ask you, how's your marriage going? Find a man who will say, are you being faithful to your wife? Have you cut off intimacy? Are you communicating? The Bible says that we are to admonish and accountability and exhort one another, lest our hearts be hardened by the deceitfulness of sin. Some of you are bitter at your spouse, and they don't even know it. And marriages blow up all the time because there's no communication. If you're in trouble, get help. Don't let your spouse say, this is between us and God. If it's at the point where it's on the verge of deteriorating, you have to obey God rather than men. Get help. I've been to counseling, my wife and I, so I'm not up here saying, you bad sinners, marriage is a lot of work, but it's a wonderful, worthwhile blessing. That's why he says, take heed to your spirit. Open up. If you're having sexual problems or, or you're men, you're in pornography or women, or you're having an affair, then repent of that. There's always hope for restoration. But take marriage seriously. As a church, pray that God will produce growing godly marriages that will produce growing godly children. And then finally, understand that as a community, we need to be compassionate towards people who have been hurt by divorce. People are hurting. Some of you grew up and your parents got divorced and, divorced and people have no idea the impact. Oh, kids are resilient. They'll bounce back. Yeah, they'll live through it, but there's shaping influences, and some of you have been damaged by that, and you need to talk with people about that. You need to understand that the church is a hospital, and be sensitive especially to victims. 
who have, who have been cast aside, who have been dealt treacherously by their spouse. And let's be there for them. And then let's be as a church, a place where we're welcoming broken people. Because at the end of the day, that's our only hope. Jesus the Lord, who died for sinners. So this is an important passage for us. Make your marriage a priority. Make your family a priority. Couple together with the church. And by all means, there needs to be lots more discussion now. Many of you need to find a friend, talk to your spouse, come for counseling, ask for prayer. Come back tonight and pray for our church. Pray for communities. Listen, this is a wonderful way to reach people. Many people come to Christ when their marriage falls apart because their life is falling apart and they know they need something else. So thank the Lord for his word and let's pray together that he will use it to continue to grow us. Father, thank you so much. Your word is so powerful. And we pray that it will bring healing. We pray that it will bring encouragement. We pray that it will bring hope. We pray that it will bring change. Lord, help us not to be like the people in Malachi, marrying unbelievers, divorcing our wives unbiblically. But instead, Lord, may you use this church to raise godly children. May you help us not to profane your holiness, but to find mercy at the cross. And may you stir us to mourn of the condition of our country, to want to sacrifice and gather to pray for our church, for our children. Many of our people have children away from the Lord or grandchildren, and it breaks their heart. We have many people who are struggling with addictions, and it breaks their heart. But we know that there's power through prayer. Lord, if there's any affairs going on, may they be repented of. People who live together, may they do the right thing. People who are young people who are fornicating, may they repent and find forgiveness and follow Christ. And may we all help each other to grow together. Lord, I thank you for this church. I love our people. I thank you that they pray for me and Tammy and my children. And Lord, I commit to continue to pray for them as you enable us to reach the world and our community with the gospel. Thank you for your power. Protect us from the evil one. And we praise you that Jesus will come again. Lord, cleanse our hearts so that we can rejoice in our forgiveness. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. God bless you. Have a great week.